0: You know, there's a, there's a little thing going on in our culture called social media, a little thing, <clears throat> that uh, is, I think, uh, selling us a bill of goods in that, that there's this ideal life out there. There's this ideal family. There's this ideal marriage. There are these ideal kids. They never spit up. They never make a mess. They're always on the honor rolls, all those kinds of things, and we always celebrate those thing, kind of things on. on on that thing called social media uh, that's out there. And it's this ideal life or world that we aspire to. And I just want to say, bull hockey. All right? It just doesn't exist, okay? There is no ideal life. Okay, yeah, there's an ideal life, but it doesn't exist in this reality that we're going to ever live in it. No, it. Now, I'm not trying to be pessimistic here, but if we're living and waiting for the ideal to happen, then we're in trouble. The ideal job will not be there. The ideal home, there will be things that will break and cost us dearly. There, there will be relationships that we bank our life on that will fail us. And th- there is nothing out there that it's going to be the reality, the ideal thing. And we've got to somehow wrestle in the adaptation of dealing with this is not ideal, but can I live with this? And there's not even any ideal disciples of Christ, if you will, to bring it right here where we're at, where we've been talking about. When I talk about these, this, this whole following and chasing Jesus and, and giving all these examples of all these disciples and all that they did, as we talked about last week, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and all that they gave up and walked away from, and you look at that and you go, okay, yeah, they're ideal disciples, but then there's me, and I'm not them. And I'll never be them, and I get it that, that I, I, I can't be like that, and we talked about those next steps to kind of get us to, to that, and we're not going to relive that. But the reality is that the sooner we embrace that the fact that there is not going to be the ideal circumstance, situation, disciple, whatever, the better off we'll be. Let me, get, let me illustrate it like this. So I don't know how many of y'all have heard the Olympic story of Jim Thorpe and how he uh, ran in the Olympics as um, the first Native American to win gold. And all of that, he won two gold medals in the 1912 Olympics. Now, it's an interesting story goes into that. If you'll notice at the bottom of, of, of the picture, he's not wearing the same colored socks. And if you get really close, he's not even wearing the same shoes. Because on the night before the race that he won, he won one of his gold medals... His shoes were stolen from him. So he had to go out into the trash and find a pair of shoes of which he would then put on his feet and make them work for him, of which then he would then run a race. And then in that race, as he was chasing for the gold, he wins the gold in not the ideal shoes. And so I want to say to you again, hey, listen, if you're not the ideal disciple, great you qualify to be a part of grace point church because we're all a bunch of misfits okay you you qualify to be a part of the kingdom of god because we're all a bunch of broken people and you 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 fit into the equation if you will out here of what god is looking for when he's looking for people to invite to follow him is that if you're a crackpot you're perfect okay you're a crackpot that God can use. You're a crackpot that God can can fix. In fact, whenever He's talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are kind of painting the picture of how awesome they are and how perfect their their lives are together, and why are you with them and not with us, and all that kind of stuff. And in Mark chapter two, we'll, we'll be there in a moment, so you can turn there, scroll there, whatever you need to do to get there. Uh, but in Mark two seventeen, in the message, it says it like this: Jesus speaking, He says. Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Who who needs to go to the doctor, the healthy person or the sick person? And Jesus is kind of putting himself as the doctor in this situation. He says, "I am. I'm here inviting." The sin sick. Now, I wanted you to see that word inviting because, again, this whole series about living and chasing the, the life that God intended you. And we've talked about all these 20 different times that God invites people into following him. And he's inviting people. Who's he, who's he inviting? He's inviting the sin sick, not the spiritually fit. So if you come in here today and you go, you know, no, no, I really don't belong here in the church and the roof may collapse in on me, but I'm here to see somebody get baptized And you know, but I'm really, I don't belong. Okay, perfect. You do belong because you're with a bunch of sin sick people and we're all a bunch of sin sick people and the sooner we embrace our sickness, the sooner we can meet the doctor and the sooner the doctor can begin to do his incredible Work in us, but that's really hard because whenever you think about a disciple again, I mean, a disciple, an apostle. Jesus called them apostles sent by Him that they were going to carry out His work into the nations of the world. I mean, it's a pretty big task given to a pretty misfit group of people. And again, we don't have time to break them all down, but just just think about that for a moment. I mean, whenever He was choosing His disciples, did He get the ones with the best looking resumes? Did he look at their resumes or their rap sheets? In reality, he looked at their rap sheets. Because when you look at the people who led the greatest movements of God throughout Scripture, you have people like Moses who kills somebody and buries them in the sand, and yet he leads the nation of Israel. you got, you got people like Paul who literally oversees. He's not just does the murdering of Christians. He oversaw the murdering of Christians. He made sure there was no blood pulse, pulsing through their veins. And so he was, and yet he writes most of the New Testament. Jesus, many times, gets the most misfit, mixed matched, kind of like Jim Thorpe's shoes, mixed matched groups of people, and he says, That's the ones that I'm inviting to pursue me, and not some lethargic sedentary, passive approach to discipleship, but actually aggressively on your feet, pursuing, chasing, following me, speaking of movement, that's the people I'm looking for. Those are the people I'm inviting. And it's not the people that we might look at and go, well, they got their life all together. They figured it out. Their marriage is perfect. Their kids are perfect. I've seen Facebook. I know they're perfect. And that's not the case at all. In fact, here's a, here's a series of verses of consolation for you. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. And these verses actually were, were pinnacle verses for me. Whenever God was calling this dyslexic remedial student who had no intentions of going to college or anything like this, let alone standing on a stage and reading and then talking... This was the most misfit person that's standing before you. Plus, a person who has a rap sheet. So, why is God choosing me? Well, then He leads me to First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-six. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called, when you were invited, when you're invited into the race, when you're invited into following. Think of who you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble of noble birth. That's me all the way through. I don't have the pedigree. I don't have the degrees. I don't have the education. I don't have the family of origin. I'm not born with a silver spoon. But God chose, here's me, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and to despise things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that purpose clause so that no one may boast before him, and it goes on to say that they would actually boast in Christ. see what happens whenever we look at our inadequacies our our, our delinquencies when we when we stack up our resume and it looks our, ra- our rap sheet looks more. Uh, bigger than our, our, our resume and we go, okay, God, you could never use me. Then we are perfect specimens for God to reach down and say, I can use you. And, I, and not only I, I can, I will, I want to, I'm calling you, I'm inviting you to join in this thing called follow me. And let's talk about that. And here's a life principle for you, and just kind of hang on to this today. nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. And that is the, the miss, that's the margin. that's the gap that we fill in there. My inefficiencies here are here. God's greatness and the calling that He's calling me to to pursue Him is here. What's going to make up that gap between the two? Grace? grace. But you don't know how much grace I need. We'll get to that in a moment. You need a lot, I know. So uh, we, we're going to get to unpacking that. In fact, when you get to start looking deep into the disciples and the ones that he chose to follow him and you see their life, you go, oh my gosh, I thought I was a messed up one. Take Mark. Let's look at Mark chapter 2. And I want us to, again, just kind of remember what we've talked about already. And we're not going to go back and read Mark 3 because in Mark 3 actually names them all off. But when you read the names in Mark 3, you're almost like you're, you're reading a phone book, okay? It's just one name after another name after another name. It doesn't really mean anything until you start diving in to the stories. And every one of them, I love it, every one of them has a story. But every one of them's story has one common denominator. They encountered the grace of Jesus Christ. And in that encounter of the grace of Jesus Christ, that's what closed the gap. That's what enabled them to become a follower, pursuer, chaser of Jesus Christ. So we got to, as they say over across the pond, we got to mind the gap. And we got to figure out the gap and that gap is the grace of God, and let's see it work. So, so here's the situation. He's got all these disciples. He's got 12 of them. And then again, we, we know some of them. We know Peter. We know James. We know John. We know Andrew. We talked about them uh, a few weeks ago. And so these are all the ones that he's kind of lining up. And we know them from stories all gone by. But do you know anything about Simon the Zealot? What do, what do we know about Levi? Well, here, if we just take those two for just a moment. You take those two alone, you get a story unto itself you got the far political left in Matthew, or Levi. He's called both. He's the far, 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 far political left. Why is he the far political left? Because he was the one who sold out to Rome. He went with Rome. And if you were a Jew and you went with Rome, you were a traitor, you were a a fink, you were a turncoat, you put any other adjective or descriptive in there, you want to put in there even foul language if you want to, because they would. And that's what they thought of a a person who was a Jew who went with Rome. And that's exactly what Matthew did, or Levi. He went with Rome. He became a tax collector. So not only was he with Rome, did he choose the political party of Rome, the corruption and the materialism and the the sin and all the debauchery of Rome, but he also actually helped finance Rome. He took money from his people and gave it to Rome. You talk about a traitor on top of a traitor. We'll go there a little bit more. So he's the far left. But you know who else Jesus chose in the midst of his 12? Simon the Zealot. Zealot wasn't his last name. Zealot was the political party he was a part of. And if you dive into all the breakdowns of about the nine or ten different Jewish tribes, if you will, not not the literal tribes, but the uh, segments of people or population segments, that there were the zealots. And the zealots lived to overthrow Rome. So literally, you put it in today's vernacular, he chose a T-Publican, if you will, and a Yellow Dog Democrat, and he put them in the same small group, and he told them to love one another. That's exactly right. So he chose somebody who was in the far, far right and the far, far left, and he put them in the same small group, and he wanted them to love each other and to figure out how to do life together. You talk about being anti, you talk about being messed up, he had the opportunity. So let's talk about Matthew. I just want to focus on Matthew today. Because Matthew is this tax collector and he's, he's, he's sold out to Rome. Most likely the story that we're going to read today will unfold in the city of Capernaum. So in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. If you were to picture it on a map and if you go up and there was a trade route that would go from Caesarea Philippi, one of the, the region's capitals, all the way down to the Decapolis. And literally you would pass through Capernaum on your way through the Decapolis. And we're going to read the story where Matthew or Levi is actually in the tax collector's booth. He's in the booth. He's actually at the toll road. He's there the one who is collecting the money. He's the one who's leveraging the taxes. I actually read up on what did they tax and how did they tax and what was the tax code of that day, if you will. And the tax code was get as much as you can. You might feel like that right now with the IRS, but it was get as much as you can, keep a little bit, send the rest to Rome. They would literally tax the axles, much like we might do today on a toll road. They would tax the axles of your chariots and how many cha- axles you had on your chariot. They would tax the number of, uh, of, uh, of animals that were pulling your, your, your chariots and your, your, your cargo loads through. They would count all the timbers and they would count the timbers and they would move them from the highlands down to the lowlands. And they, would, they would count the rock. They would literally go all the way down to going through your parcels and counting the pieces of mail. And they would tax you for every little thing all along the way. And that was the job of Matthew. So needless to say, he probably wasn't the most socially accepted person in the room. In fact, when Jesus is walking along in this story, you might expect this. Jesus said, hey, stay away from that guy. Guys, if you're going to be holy and righteous like me, stay away from the tax collectors. That's not at all. What he did. Let's, let's, let's read the story. Verse uh, 13, he says in verse chapter 2, he says, And he went again beside the sea, as he so commonly does. And all the crowds, and we've talked about the crowds. The crowds are not bad. The crowds are just the crowds. But if all you do is stay in the crowd and you never come out from among the crowd, then you're just a convenience shopper of Jesus' goods and services. So they, what were they doing? They were, they were coming not to serve Jesus. They were coming to hear from Jesus his teaching. Verse 14, and he passed by and he saw the Levi, Matthew or Levi, the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth. And he said to them, stay away from that guy. He's a loser. He's a traitor. He's a turncoat. No. He turns to that guy and he says, say it with me. Follow me. And what does Matthew do? or What does Levi do? And he arose and he followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, now I like this because the scribes and the Pharisees, they're the, they're the religious strong, right, if you will, and they were self-righteous, right? And they're way over here, and they're seeing all this take place, and Jesus taking and Levi with him and going into his house and sitting down at his table and with a bunch of other sinners that they don't even mention what their sins are. And, and then what is, what is it? He said to his disciples... Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he create a triangle here? Jesus is within earshot, but instead of talking to Jesus about Jesus, he talked to somebody else about Jesus. That's called gossip too, okay, in a less technical term. Instead of talking to Jesus about Jesus and why are you sitting down with the tax collectors and sinners, what a lot of people do in a dysfunctional family is they'll talk to somebody about somebody else instead of talking to that somebody else, and that's exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing here. hope you followed that mess. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard it. (laughs) So close enough that Jesus was even able to pick it out. And so Jesus answers their question that they asked the disciples. He said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, right? But those who are sick, I came to call, not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the Pharisees and scribes, they had life all figured out in their religiosity. Jesus wasn't, okay, I, I'm not here to deal with you because you think you've got it all figured out. I want to deal with the one who knows he's sick and embraces his sickness. So let's talk about what does it mean? And am I qualified? Because Am I qualified to be a disciple of Jesus. Are you qualified? If everyone knew what you have done, would they still look at you the same? Would they look at you and say, you hypocrite, what do you think? And maybe you have been a hypocrite. You've been judgmental. I I don't know. You can, look, you can go on and on, but do you qualify to be a disciple? So let's just let's just put the cookies on the bottom shelf here today. What does it take to be a disciple of Christ? Here, here's number one. Be self-aware of your own fact that you're broken and you're deprived. And you gotta own it. You gotta be aware of it and you gotta own it. Now, if I was to go on and describe a little bit more about this whole thing going on in the, in, in the story here, you've got to understand that a tax collector was the equivalent of the Roman mafia without the missing bodies. And there may have been some missing bodies in there, too. I don't, I don't know. But they were the ones who were the servants of Rome, and their job was to, to glean as much money... To rape as much from, to take as much from the people that they encountered. In fact, it was so severe and so nasty and ugly. There's only three times in all of the New Testament or in all the gospel that tax collectors are even mentioned. One is here, Levi. Second is Zacchaeus in in Jericho down further south. And then the third one is this passage. Whenever the Pharisees were in the temple, this is what they would pray. Listen to this prayer. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like the tax collectors. Thank God I'm not like the tax collector. Thank God that that, that you you know you can call me a lot of things. I, I'm a, I may not do a lot of things right, and I may lose my temper, but hey, I'm not as bad as a tax collector. I'm not as bad. And we would say in our culture today, I'm not as bad as a pedophile. I might have done something wrong, but I didn't do that wrong. I, I, I didn't cheat. I didn't cheat. I, they cheated. I, I didn't cheat. I, now, did I emotionally go there? Did I visually go there? Did I play like I was there? Until you come to the end of yourself, you are not ready for the grace of God, and you're not ready to be a disciple of Christ. It was so bad being a tax collector that in the Jewish Talmud, which was the Jewish holy book a law, they literally said that it's okay to cheat a tax co- It's okay to cheat a tax collector because they're cheating you anyway. So that's how bad it was. And here is Matthew, Levi, sitting in this tax booth, a Jewish-born citizen, turncoat, now serving the nation of Rome and all of its paganism and immorality and all of its lifestyle and and here is Levi over here and every night he had to lay his head down almost keeping one eye open to make sure he wasn't stabbed in the middle of the night he laid himself down realizing that man I just I just took dinner away from a family tonight I'm not qualified. And what does Jesus do? But he walks up to the tax window and he says, hey, follow me. When Jesus gets with his disciples and he's discipling them and they climb up the side of a mountain and they, he sits down with them on the side of the mountain and it the very first thing and the very first message and the most intense discipleship curriculum in the scriptures is the Sermon on the Mount and the very first words out of his mouth are this, blessed are the poor in spirit. The bo- broken and bankrupt. The person who's got to the end of himself and said, you know, I need Jesus. Now we're talking. Now you're ready. And I take you back to verse 17 where we just read it a few moments ago. He said, hey, listen, I didn't come for the, for the, for the, for the healthy. I came for the sin sick. Because see, the Pharisees, they didn't see anything that they were doing was wrong. In fact, they saw themselves as pretty good people. And we'll talk more about them in a little bit. But here's just the three things that if you're writing things down, you can jot these down if you want to. But here's just three thoughts to consider when you look at this. And you look at the life of Levi and the, the traitor and the betrayal and the backstabbing and the thievery and the raping and the pillaging that he was about. These are three points for you and for me. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one. That, 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 that person who's committed that, mm-mm. That, that, but they did this to me, that they touched me, they, they betrayed my trust. I, I know it, I know it, I know it, I know it. And it's not right, it's not right, it's not right. But they're not beyond the grace of God. No sin Is so great that God's grace isn't greater. We all have a gap. Some of our gaps are a little wider than others. The good thing is that God has enough grace. His grace, according to what he told Corinth, his grace is sufficient for whatever the situation is. No one will experience God's grace. Now here, this is the person who has been living the broken lifestyle. No one will ever experience God's grace until they reach the end of themselves. And you know when that happens? Typically then. They hit and it hurts and things get broken. And sometimes they'll get up and they'll turn to God and sometimes they'll get up and blame God. The person who turns to God and their brokenness they experience the grace of God. You don't need to... You can figure out on your own what happens to the person who turns against God. Where sin increased, Romans 5.20 says, grace abounded all the more. No matter how much sins there, guess what? His grace abounded even more. So you're, you're not ready to be a disciple until you are self-aware and you come to the point of realizing that I'm deprived, I'm broken... I need help. I need Jesus. Number two, until you're a multiplier of your faith into your friends and family. Yeah, I've said this before. And then some of us are stuck back on desanitizing ourselves over here, trying to get ourselves all fixed and cleaned up. And then we'll go make disciples. So listen to this. We are disciples to make disciples. And as you are going, you are to be making disciples. We say around here that you are becoming fully obedient multipliers following Jesus, okay? It's not that you're there, you'll ever arrive to get there, but hey, I'm going to be coming. While I'm becoming, I'm going to be transferring on, passing on. I'm a multiplier, multiplying the faith that is in me. Now, what, what you see here is this little incredible story with Matthew and Levi, and, and you could skip over it real quickly as he leaves the tax booth, as he follows in line with Jesus, and he starts pursuing Jesus. Don't miss verse 15. And he reclined at the table in his house, and he invited some people over, some, some upper echelon people, some city council members. No, 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 no. He invited his friends Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. He does something here that's so, so, so critical that every disciple who makes disciples must learn to do, to be a disciple. I'm a multiplier. I'm making disciples of other people. Is that I realize that I haven't been given the grace of God to retain the grace of God, but to extend the grace of God. I haven't been given the, in case you missed that, I haven't been given the grace of God to retain the grace of God, but to extend the grace of God. And how can I extend it out into my family, into my friends, into those around me? Because notice what happens here. Although there were, he, he becomes a single lone follower, then he turns around and invites people to his house, and they sit down and they have dinner with Jesus, and then what happens to them? And many who followed him. So, there were more people who became followers of Jesus on this day. More sinners, more tax collectors than just this, just this Matthew guy. See, what he tapped into was this Greek word called oikos, and it's like, it's talking about family and friends and extensions, and, and literally, in, in a word study on, it, it could be up to four generations. So whenever you see the word oikos in, in, in the Greek text, it, it's literally talking about not just my, husband-wife, not just my husband-wife and immediate children. It's my husbands and wife and, and, and my aunts and uncles and my, my work associates and my neighbors and my, my friends and my, the people I go to the gym with and the people I hang out with and I, I play fantasy football league with. I'm sure they didn't do that then, but it's all those people. That's your oikos. In fact, let me give you some of the, the, the times that the word oikos is used. It, one time Jesus healed the royal official in, in John chapter 4, verse 53. It says, he and all his household believed. Now, it wasn't just those who lived under his roof. It was more than just that. The Philippian jailer becomes a follower of Christ. In Acts 16, we studied this on, on Easter Sunday. If you want to go back and listen to that. And what does he do? It says this, that he believed in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved, you and your oikos, your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. So he had a lot of friends. He had a lot of networks. He had a, and all of a sudden, the Philippian jailer wasn't the only person who became a believer, but it was his Oikos, it was his network of friends and family members immediately around him. It's exactly what Matthew did. He became a follower of Jesus, but then he immediately that very day almost is, they sit down at the table and has Jesus come and sit down and have dinner with me and let me get some other tax collectors to sit down with us. Peter's story. So we've seen Paul, we've seen John, no, we've seen Levi, we've seen Jesus, we've seen so many people doing this, we've seen the Philippian jailer doing this. Now you look at Peter and he shares with Cornelius, and this is what it says in Acts chapter 10. It says, On the following day, he entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends, Oikos. What does he do? He calls them together and then Peter begins to teach in verse 44 and Peter was still saying these things uh, and the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So Cornelius gets his oikos together and then they all are sitting down together in this small group kind of arena and Peter teaches and then what happens? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they ask him to remain for some days. This beautiful thing happens. And a true disciple of Christ is not a person who's wanting to take in and consume Jesus, but a person who's following Christ is a person who's ready to dispense with grace and not just consume grace. Give grace and not just receive grace. Give Jesus and not just take Jesus. That's a disciple of Christ. You have an oikos. And if you're a disciple, what are you doing to reach your oikos? Who's my oikos? My oikos is the natural sphere of influence that I have around me. You don't, you, listen, you don't have to put on black pants and a white shirt and a tie and get on a bicycle and go riding up and down the street and knocking on doors. That's not your oikos, okay? You just got to go to the person sitting in the next cubicle. You just got to go to the person who's in your next-door neighbor who you've been talking about everything but Jesus and start talking about the life that Jesus is different than he's made in your life. Start building that kind of relationship where you can have that kind of conversation. That is when things get beautiful and powerful. I read a book right before starting Grace Point 16 years ago. Read it in December. Pulled it off the shelf this week in December of, 20, uh, of 2000. That's how, that's how long ago it was. The title of the book. It's the master plan for making disciples by Wynne Arn. He says that the average new follower of Jesus will have twelve friends, oikos, that are outside the faith. But the longer they stay a follower of Christ, the average drops down to four. You have a window of opportunity as a new believer to bring other people to become believers in Jesus you're ready to be a disciple when you're ready to multiply your faith number 3 number 3 is when you are tired and sick of fake religion and you're ready for an authentic deep relationship now you're ready to be a disciple Now, let me just remind you where where, where Matthew grew up. Matthew grew up, we know this, there's just no way about it. We don't know anything about Alphaeus, his father, but we do know this because of his deep Jewish traditions and faith, that he grew up as a Jewish devout boy, probably going to the synagogue every day for school. And why do we know this? Because the same Levi guy is the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, the gospel of Matthew was written by Matthew, the Levi, this guy who's a tax collector and becomes a believer in Christ and a follower in Christ. Do you realize that the book of Matthew quotes the Old Testament 99 times? And that the book of Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than Matthew, Luke, or John combined? And that the book of Matthew mentions all the Jewish Bible, the law, the writings, and the prophets? This guy was as Jew as anything, okay? Okay? He was was a follower of the Jewish faith, but something happened. He was tired of religion. this is what he did. He walked away from religion and he joined up into the Roman Empire, into the materialism, into the immorality, into the unethical, all about get money for myself kind of lifestyle. That's where Matthew landed. And he landed there, leaving religion, coming over here to another form of religion called materialism, and he found himself empty in his soul. And in that moment, he encounters Jesus, and Jesus does not invite him to join the team. Doesn't invite him to join the church. Doesn't invite him to join anything. All he invited him, you you read the words, what did he say? Follow me. He invited him into a relationship. and see, some of us today, in this section right here and in this section over here, what you did when you were a kid is you joined a church. You got religion. And then you stepped out. And you're somewhere today. You're ready to be a disciple when you're ready to enter into a relationship with the God of the universe it says, follow me, and I'm going to make something of you. I'm going to work in you, and I'm going to change you. And you think, okay, where do you get all that? Listen, you don't have to go. You can go to the Old Testament. You can go to the New Testament. If you want to understand what it means to follow and the whole idea of shepherding and Jesus shepherding my life, you just go to one of the most quoted verses and the most quoted passages in all the Bible. Go to Psalm 23. In fact, here is your homework assignment for this week. Read Psalm 23. I want you to read every day, and I want you to make notes to yourself. Okay? Every day you're going to self-feed. You're going to be in Psalm 23, and every day this is what you're going to do. You're going to ask God, God, teach me from Psalm 23 today what it means to be in a relationship with you. That's all you have to pray. Because what you're going to find when you read Psalm 23, you're going to see the very first words, The Lord is my shepherd. I'm following the Lord. What's the next phrase? I shall not want. Wow, I'm going to learn contentment when I follow you, God. In fact, I'm going to learn that if you lead me, you're going to take me beside the still waters. I'm thirsty, God. I am so, so thirsty. And I want you to be my shepherd. The life that Jesus called you to was not a religion. He's calling us all into a deep relationship. If your rap sheet is longer than your resume, you're ready to be a disciple. If you're ready to engage your oikos, your natural sphere of influence into helping them, to become disciples of Christ, you're ready to be a disciple yourself. You're a disciple that's going to make disciples. You're ready to be a disciple when you're ready to leave religion behind and get into a relationship with Jesus. But there's one more. You're ready to be a disciple when you're willing to live your yes for Jesus. Now here's what I want to do right now. I want to dismiss all those who are getting baptized. What you're going to do is you're going to walk up, get up right now, you're going to walk out that door right there and uh, take a hard left there and then you're going to get ready and we're going to, we're going to talk about you for a minute, okay? Because here's, here's what these people that are getting up and are doing right now. Is they're saying by their baptism that I've said yes to Jesus. Now, just because they get wet today in Bentonville City water doesn't make it, okay? They're entering into a relationship. that Many of you are here to support them in that process. But when you look at this, I want you to see them as they are making a statement that they want their yes to be for Jesus. And they're willing to step out. And some of you, maybe one of you here today said, hey, listen, I didn't come ready to be baptized, but I'm tired of religion. I got a rap sheet longer than a resume and I'm ready to follow Jesus and I'm ready to get up. You can go out that door right now and you can go home wet, okay? Seriously. You give your life to Jesus right here, right now. Step up, step step in and get wet and go home. The water's not going to make the difference. It's going to be your life and your relationship with Jesus Christ. But let me close by just putting an exclamation point on Matthew. Because I want us to understand, when he got out of that tax booth, when he was sitting down there by the, by the, by the, by the street in, in, in Capernaum, and he was collecting that and weighing out those taxes, he left it all. He had already left Judaism. He had already left everything about his faith. He had already been disowned and marked off as a blackballed in the community because he had left the Jewish faith. And now he's standing in the Roman court and he's collecting for Rome. And, and whenever Jesus says "Follow me," and he gets up and he walks away from Rome, he literally could have signed his death warrant there. He lost his family, his friends, and everything in the Jewish culture. He lost Rome and his source of income. And he walks over. And And he says, I'm going with you, Jesus. That's putting it all out there. Now, I wish I had a chapter and a verse I could take you to, but I can't. Whatever happened to Matthew? Well, it's believed that in A.D. 70, he was a disciple who was making disciples, and he was taking the gospel to Ethiopia. He was taking this message of Jesus to Ethiopia. And when he was there, they believed he was jailed and was burned at the stake. I can't take you to the chapter and verse on that, but I can tell you this. Everything we know about Matthew is he lived as yes. And if he said he was following Jesus, he followed Jesus to his death. Are you qualified to be a disciple? You'll have to answer that. Are you ready to be a disciple? Are you ready to be a follower? You'll have to answer that. I can tell you these that are going to get in the water in just a second. They're doing it because they're saying yes to Jesus. In fact, Chris, who will be the very first one in there, he and I met for coffee this past week. What I thought would be a 15-minute conversation ended up being an hour-and-a-half conversation. And he gave me every reason in the book of why. He couldn't be a disciple. And believe you me, he's got the list. But the beauty of the grace of God is this, is every one of the things on his list is met by the grace of God and covered by the grace of God.